1: So glad that you're here. Welcome in. I want to welcome all of those who are joining us online from whenever and wherever you are. So grateful to have you with us today. Also want to welcome all of those out in Prescott Valley today. So grateful to have you worshiping with us. If you are new in any of those areas today, if you are connecting with us, uh, maybe for the first time or a couple of first couple couple of times. I speak for a living. Um, Then we would love to connect with you. If you're here at the Prescott campus, if you go out in the lobby off to the left, we have a place we call Pastor's Point. I'll be hanging out there after the service. If you're out in Prescott Valley, uh, you can stop by Connection Central. One of our pastors will be there. If you're online, uh, you can just click on the new here button there, and we would love to have one of our pastors follow up with you. We're so glad that you are here. Today, we're continuing this series. We begin... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we call it Off the Flannel Graph. Now, if you're a newcomer with us, uh, the idea of Off the Flannel Graph is this. Like, if you have any church history, if you went to church in all in the 70s or 80s, there was probably some sweet little old lady in some musty church Baptist basement who had a little felt board with these two-dimensional little figurines, and they would tell you these amazing Bible stories on a flannel graph and it was a great moment. Here's the problem that many of those stories that we learned in those environments they ca- became for us children's stories. Like that's what they turned into. They just became children's stories and they were never ever meant to become children's stories. They are the holy word of God, scripture for us today, but we've relegated them to children's stories. And so We get this sanitized version of what the the Word of God says, and we just dismiss them as adults. And so what we're trying to do in this series is to take those stories off the flannel graph. And we're trying to ask the question, what does God want to say through these stories that many of us learned as kids? What does God have to say to us through them today? So that's the premise of this series, Um, and we're going to dive into another one of those famous children's stories Today, Now, before we get into our story, I I just want to begin today by making a simple observation. And here it is. No one honors a coward. Like, no one honors a coward. No one honors the guy who knocks over the little old lady while he's running out of the burning building. Nobody honors him. Nobody respects the guy who refuses to stand up for the injustice that's right in front of him. Nobody thinks highly of the yes man who will not confront his tyrannical boss. No one admires the deadbeat dad who doesn't take care of his kids. There there is no story where the hero is the guy who compromises what he believes in because doing the right thing is too hard. No one honors a coward. Instead, we honor the people who run in when everybody else is running out. We honor the little man who stands up for those who cannot stand for themselves. We admire the man and the woman who do the right thing even when it costs them. We esteem people who sacrifice themselves on behalf of others we erect statues to those who show great courage in the midst of great pain we the heroes of our stories are those who stood up for what they believed in even if they had to stand alone those are always the heroes no one honors the coward but we universally honor courage which is why so many of these stories that we learned on the flannel graph became our favorite stories. Because they are stories of great courage. They're great They're great courage in action. Whether it's Noah in the ark, David and Goliath, Esther before the king. Whether it's Daniel in the lion's den, Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. Deborah the warrior. These stories are story, stories of great courage in the face of of great trials, of men and women who stood up for what they believed in even when they stood alone. And so, throughout these stories, we get to see God show up in their lives in very real, very amazing, very tangible ways. Why? Because they refused to compromise. They refused to back down. They refused to do the easy thing instead of the right thing. Which again, I think is why so many of us as kids, we loved these stories. Because we wanted to be those kinds of people. We wanted to be the kind of people who stood up for what was right. We wanted to be like them. To hold on to our integrity in the face of compromise. To do the right thing even when it was hard. We wanted to be that as kids. And if you're a parent, you wanted those things for your kids. That's what you want for your kids. Now the question is. Do you still want those things? Like today, as an adult, as a teenager, do you still want to live that kind of life today? Are you still striving to be that kind of person? Does doing the right thing matter more to you today than your comfort matters to you? Are you willing today to risk your friends, Your family, your job, your finances, your comfort, your reputation, your future, maybe even your own life. Are you willing to risk those things to do the right thing as it relates to your faith? If you were really honest today, put a little truth serum in you today, would you say that your faith journey has been marked more by courage or cowardice. I think, sadly, for many of us, even though we serve the same God that they serve, even though that God still has the same power he had, even though he's still willing to work in the same way in our lives, oftentimes when we are faced with the same opportunities that they have to speak up for those who can't speak, to do the right thing if, if, even if we stand alone... When we are given those same opportunities, we miss them. We miss out on them time and again because we choose cowardice over courage. And in doing so, what ends up happening is we miss out on the opportunity to see what God might do through us. We miss out on the opportunity to see how God might have shown up if we would have done the right thing and not the easy thing. What, what would have happened if I would have said the thing I needed to say? What would have happened if I would have kept fighting for my marriage? What would have happened if I would have been completely honest in the moment? What would have happened if I would have spoken up instead of saying, staying silent? What would have happened? If I would have adopted that kid or gave that money or sold that house or told the truth or made that career change or went into the ministry, what would have happened if I would have done the thing that God asked me to do instead of doing the easy thing? When we compromise, we lose the chance. To see how God might have shown up. Because we're cowards. Now, nobody wants to be called a coward. I don't want to be called a coward. But oftentimes, in, in those moments, we choose the easy thing over the right thing because we're afraid. It's, it is because of our fear. We choose to compromise Instead of doing the right thing, knowing knowing what we ought to do, we, we compromise because we're afraid of something. We're afraid of what somebody might say. We're afraid of what somebody might do. We're afraid that we don't have what it takes. We're afraid God might not show up. We're afraid of what it'll cost us. We're afraid it won't work out. We're afraid we'll lose too much. And so we compromise our integrity. And thus we miss out on seeing what God might have done if we would have just done the right thing. Today we're going to look at a story. Again, for many of you, you know this story. It comes to us from Daniel chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn them on, turn them to Daniel chapter 3. The story takes place in about 605 B.C. The background is this Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. It's the most powerful nation in the world, which makes him the most powerful man in the world. And around 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar takes his army and goes and conquers Israel, ransacks the nation. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a smart guy, he didn't just go through and Destroy all the people. And he didn't just go through and make random slaves of all of the people. Nebuchadnezzar would go into a nation. And he would figure out who are the best and the brightest of that nation. And he would take them back to Babylon. To indoctrinate them into the culture of the Babylonians. He he would go and find those who were the most physically fit, those who were good-looking, quick learners, well-informed, wise beyond their years, and he would bring them back to Babylon. And over the span of 36 months, which, by the way, is almost the exact same amount of time that universities in America take students, I don't know if there's a connection there, he would take them for 36 months to indoctrinate them, to transform their worldviews. He would take 36 months to transform their worldviews by changing their environment, their diet, their education, their language, and their name. And he would replace the culture they came with with the culture that he wanted them to have, which was the Babylonian culture. And he did this to the best and the brightest of all of the nations that he would conquer. Because he knew if I can transform, if I can change the best and the brightest I can change the world. I can transform the whole world into the worldview that I want them to have. Now, four of the best and the brightest out of the nation of Israel were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are probably all names that you have heard if you ever grew up in church. And so they came to Babylon just like every other slave, they came in chains as slaves. However, God blessed Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so that those who were put in charge of them found, gave favor to them. Like they saw in them skills and abilities that caused them to be given vast amounts of responsibility and power and influence very early. In fact, by the time we get into Daniel chapter 3, they've already been made city managers over the whole province of Babylon. They came in as slaves, but God quickly helped them rise to the top of power, influence, wealth, and authority. Again, Daniel 2:49 says they were put in charge of the whole province of Babylon. Now, there were people already in Babylon. There were some Babylonians who were already in charge who have now been usurped by this authority given to these Hebrew boys. Like they lost out on some major opportunities because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego now have their jobs. They've been put into positions of power, which made these these administrators who were already in power in Babylon not like these guys very much. They were ready to figure out how can we take these guys out. So that's the backdrop of this story in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. He then summoned all the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So again as a conquering king Nebuchadnezzar was really really smart he He knows that in his kingdom, he has people from every nation speaking all kinds of language, come from all kinds of cultures, worshiping all kinds of gods. And he knows as a king, one of the things that he needs to do is to rally some unity, to get some control over these people, get them all thinking in the same direction. And so he creates this statue. We're not told what it is. Most scholars believe it was probably an image of himself, but we're not told that. But he sets up this great statue out in the desert because he wanted to get everybody on the same page. Essentially what he's saying is, whatever you served before, whoever you worshipped before, that's fine. Whatever you came in with doesn't matter. But here's what's going to happen moving forward. From now on, whenever you hear the music, you're going to bow down. I don't care what you've worshipped before. I don't care what you've believed before. From now on, when the music drops, you drop. You bow down. It does not matter what happened before. I am in charge now. Whenever you hear the band warming up, doesn't matter if it's 2 at night or 2 in the morning, you, you bow down because I am the one calling the shots. That's what he's saying. Now... For most of the people in Babylon, that wouldn't have been a problem. Most of the people from all the other nations, they were all polytheistic. In other words, they worshipped many gods. So, worshipping this god, adding to the pantheon, the more gods, the merrier. The more I can get on my team, hallelujah, I'll take another one. So, for most of them, this is not an issue. But for one group of people in the crowd, it is an issue. Because there was one group, one nation, that was monotheistic. They were the Hebrews. The Jewish people served one God. And their God, they believed, was the only God. In fact, it is so ingrained in the worship of their one God that their God put it in his top ten list, you shall not worship any graven images. You shall not have any other gods besides me. Like, it was top ten. Like, you don't do that. Okay? And so for one group in the crowd, this is a problem. They were to serve and bow down to the one true God. And so, this is a problem for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, as soon as they, meaning all of these people, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and the peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. over the affairs of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. So again, try to put yourself here. They're out on these plains, and the statue is there, and it's gold, and it's sunny, and it's gleaming off, and all the people are there, and the band fires up, and all the music plays, and in unison, Thousands of people, tens of thousands of people all drop and begin to worship at the altar of this image of gold. Save three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Everybody else hits their face. Three are left standing. No sooner than the music stops than some of these wise guys, these astrologers, these these philosophers, these these people who have been a part of the court of the empire. These wise guys from Babylon come and rat out our boys Rakshak and Benny. (laughs) And they say, oh great king, you're so amazing. Did you know that there are three guys? Who you've put in charge, by the way, you gave them our jobs. You put these guys in charge, and they're not, they're not bowing down to you. They're not, they're not even listening to you. They pay no attention to you, Your Majesty. They don't care what you say. They don't bow down, Nebuchadnezzar. Are you going to stand for that? Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to bow down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. So the first time he said, You don't bow down, you're going in the fire. But Nebuchadnezzar likes these guys. I mean, he put them in charge of the whole province of Babylon. He likes them, so he calls them in. And he goes, whoa, 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 is this true? Did I Are they telling me the truth? There must be some misunderstanding. So here's what we're gonna do. Look, we'll we'll fire up the band again. And when you hear the horn flute, zither lyre. If you bow down, very good. We're all good. Let's just, just do the thing and we'll be fine. Just do that. But if you don't, then I'm going to have to throw you into the furnace. He likes these guys. He gives them a second chance. But then he says, but if, but if you don't, I'm going to throw you in. Like, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. If you don't do what I'm telling you to do, this horrible thing is going to happen to you. If you don't compromise what you know to be right, this is going to end badly for you. If you don't, and here's the real issue here today, if you, if you don't fear the consequences of disobeying me, more than you fear the consequences of disobeying your God, then your fate is set. Because I am in the I'm, I'm in control now. I call the shots. You better fear me more than you fear your God. If you don't fear me more than you fear your God, you're going into the furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And this this is the question that rolls around in our heads in those moments of compromise, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Then what God will be able to rescue me? If you tell the truth to your boss, then what God will give you another job? If you're honest with your client about the house they're about to buy, then what God is able to pay your mortgage? If you speak up for those who are mistreated, then what God is going to save you from the same mistreatment? If, If you give away your savings account, then what God is able to make sure you have enough? And in all of those moments where we're given this opportunity to either do the thing that God's called us to do or compromise, this is the question. What God will then take care of me? Because whenever we're in one of these dilemmas and we're tempted to compromise what we know is right, it's in those moments that we're either going to do what everybody around us expects us to do, because we know what's going to happen. We know the likely outcome. If I do that, the thing that everybody else is doing, I know what will happen. But if I do the thing that God's telling me to do, I don't know what might happen. I can't be sure what will happen. Most of us are confident we know what will happen if I do the thing that everybody expects me to do. But we aren't very confident that we know the outcome if we do the thing God wants us to do, and thus we compromise. And as I was thinking about this, I imagined, think about all of the justifications, the rationalizations that these guys could have made in this moment to just hit their face when given a second chance. I mean, everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is doing it. I'll just go with the crowd. I mean, it won't hurt for me just to do it just this one time, just this one time. What harm does it do? Nobody's getting hurt. I'll do it in secret. Like, here we are. We're just with the... Everybody else doesn't need to know. Just in this moment, in this secret, no one will know. Imagine they're thinking, like, God put us in this position of authority in the nation of Babylon. God put us in this position. God gave us this position. He wants us here. And if this is what I have to do to stay in this position, then God would probably want that. He wouldn't want us to lose this position. He gave us and let evil people take it. So we got to do the thing to stay where he's put us. How can we witness to the glory of God if all of these people hate us? So we probably just need to blend in for the meantime. I'll tell you what, I'll just, I'll just bow down. I'll do the thing, but in my heart, I'll worship God. It'll look like I'm doing the thing, but I'm actually worshiping God. When in Rome, do as the Romans, I just need to fit in so I can build their trust. Like, all of these are rationalizations they could have made in that moment to do the thing that they knew they shouldn't do. I can't help but wonder how many of us have made those exact same rationalizations. But look how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. They replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Translation, if you think this little speech is going to change anything in us. You're kidding yourself. You can tell the band to go home. Because we heard you and we heard them and we're not going to do it. And if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. This is huge. Nebuchadnezzar asked the question, then what God is able to save you? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, The God we serve is able. He's able. He is able to save us. from. You think you're in control. You're not in control. Our God is in control. You ask who's able? Our God is able. He is able to protect us. He is able to provide for us. He is able to intervene for us. Our God is able. Do you believe that today? More importantly, do you live your life As if that's true. Do you actually believe that? That I don't have to compromise. I don't have to compromise to get the job. I don't have to compromise to make the sale. I don't have to compromise to keep the friends. I don't have to compromise to keep the guy. I don't have to compromise because my God is able. My God is able. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. This is mind-boggling faith. Our God is able, but even if he doesn't. Even if he doesn't. Even if the sale falls through. Even if the cancer comes back. Even if the divorce happens. My God is able, but even if he Doesn't. I'm not going to bow down to your idol. Even if he does not rescue us, I will not worship. Because ultimately, our faith is not based on God's activity in our lives. It's based on his identity. That he is God. It's based not on what he does in this moment. It's based on who he is. So we're not going to bow down. He's able to rescue us, but we don't know if he's willing. But it doesn't matter because we will worship him either way. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude toward them changed. He liked them. He wanted to keep them in. He gave them a second chance. He don't like them no more. Because they're telling him, you aren't in charge. You don't call the shots. We answer to a higher power. You have no control over us, Nebuchadnezzar. And so he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and all the clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace furnace so his attitude changed and he's so angry he cranks up the gas on the fire seven times hotter he's like we're gonna these guys are gonna find out how powerful I am the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach Meshach and Abednego Uh, and these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace this is part of you probably never made it onto your flannograph, right the soldiers that are going up, they die in the process of throwing these guys in. Like, you never saw the screaming, fiery guys falling in, right? Didn't happen. They fall into the furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar leaps to his feet. This is the part of the story you probably do remember. King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three? Weren't there three that tied up and were thrown into The fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. Well, he said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Again, this is the part of the story that you know. They're thrown into the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar looks like, wait, 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 weren't there three? But I see Four. As your VeggieTales version, and one was a shiny one. <laughs> we don't know who was in the fire with them. Something was an angel of the Lord. Something it was Jesus in his pre-incarnate state and met them in the fire. But it doesn't really matter. Nebuchadnezzar is amazed, and he calls out to them, "Come out!" And they walk out, and they don't smell like smoke, and their hair's not singed. And Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, the rules have changed. That whole music thing, forget about that. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. Praise be to that God. Why? Why praise be to that God? Because they trusted in him and they defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. And this is the application for us today. This is what I want to be said of those who are part of Quad City today. That we are a people who are so passionate about following Jesus that we are willing to give up everything so as not to compromise. That we are willing to give up the sale, give up the relationship, give up the security, give up the comfort, give up the car, give up the popularity. We would rather give up anything that would cause us to even bend a knee a moment rather than compromise and worship our God. But the only way we're going to get here Is when we get to the place that we actually do believe our God is able. He's able. He's able to provide. He's able to protect. He's able. He is able to do all that He has promised He will do. So I don't have to compromise because my God is able. Do you believe that today? We don't know what He's going to do, our faith isn't based on what he is going to do. Our faith is based on his character. Our devotion to him is not based on what he does in my circumstances, but who he is. I know what he's able to do. I don't know what he's going to do. But I will worship him either way. Let that be our battle cry. Father, we are grateful for this story. Not as a children's story to teach us courage. But as an example of what it looks like to be wholly surrendered to you. To actually have a fear of the Lord that trumps all fear of man. So may we be a people who refuse to compromise. Because we truly do believe you are able even when we don't see you're willing and we worship you based on your character not on our circumstances give us those kinds of eyes to see you in that way in the name of Jesus we pray, amen